Well, we decided to do Amos. <laughs> we, we, we've probably all got our favourite bits of the Bible, and us preachers have our favourite bits of the Bible. Uh, I think God's got his favourite bits of the Bible as well. There's some, there's some kind of incredible passages which are worth preaching again and again and again. Um, some of Jesus' adventures and stories and teachings are just phenomenal and they're timeless and you can't get enough of them. And then there's these bits of the Bible that we hardly ever go to. Is that right? Let's have an honest show of hands. How many of you have studied Amos? Okay, that's about a third, maybe. Third, which is great. It's one of those things that, books that we just got to come to. And um, I just, I've just loved getting into this. We called it the roar of the lion because that's kind of what it is from verse 1 until the end. It's this massive roar of emotion and tirade. And uh, some of the things that Amos has got to say are hard to read and they hit you a little bit between the eyes and it's going to be difficult to preach on. But it's worth it because I think he is a man that can speak into any culture. He's a, he's a prophet for our time as much as his. So, in order to do this, today is going to be like an overview, and then we're going to pull out some stuff from that, from the overview as well. Um, but also, next week we're going to dip into some of the text in more detail, and to see what he's got to say to us. But first we're going to have to do a history lesson, okay? So you can work out where Amos sits, what's going on in the life of Israel, uh, who he's speaking to, okay? So to give you a timeline, it's a beautiful sunny day, so I'm not going to complain that you can't see the screen that well. Uh, I'd rather have the sun. But um, this is uh, basically what happens to Israel and Judah after David, who's here, who hands on this united kingdom to Solomon and then after Solomon the kingdom splits into two so you've got Israel in the north which is ten tribes and then in the south you've got Judah that splits off with Rehoboam so you've got Jeroboam and Rehoboam just to make it confusing uh, and these two tribes here continue as a separate nation to the, the tribes of Israel up here which are ten tribes you've got Judah and Benjamin in the south and the other ten in the north, and it's just kind of good king, bad king. You can read about it in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. There's some amazing stories in there. But you have to follow it all the way along through these kings before we get to Jeroboam II. This is the area that we're going to be looking at. Amos up here is the prophet in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, where the ten tribes are in the time of Jeroboam II. He's not from Israel, but he's a prophet to the people of Israel. And so it's towards the end of Jeroboam's reign here, and he's a contemporary with Hosea uh, and Isaiah as well, who is here, same sort of time. Isaiah came just after. So that's where we are. That's where we find ourselves in, in the history. But this reign of Jeroboam was an interesting one. I don't know if you can see here. See... There's Israel there. Okay, this is before Jeroboam II. 
when Jeroboam was in power, Israel became huge. So there's the Dead Sea there. Here's the Dead Sea here. You can see that the nation of Israel, the borders, stretched all the way over here, all the way up here somewhere, and round. Okay? So this was a time of incredible growth and expansion under Jeroboam II. So in this 40 years, they have subdued the lands to the north and the east and the south. Uh, Judah was under the power of Israel, largely, in the, in the north. And it was a time of um, stability from war, because you've got the Assyrian Empire up here, which are... Oh, hang on, see if it all... There you go. Which are threatening, and you've got the massive Egyptian em Empire down here. But in between, but you've got Syria and Judah. So Israel itself is actually quite insulated from those superpowers. And it's feeling pretty confident in its stability. So it's had a rest from war for 40 years. It's, it's peacetime, if you like. And in this time, they, they controlled the trade routes, which meant taxation and trade. So they became more prosperous financially. They expanded the military. They restored and expanded their cities, and they developed extravagant religious festivals. Enormous sacrifices, just endless bulls and, uh, and lambs, and just huge extravagant sacrifices and celebrations. The ruling classes became extremely wealthy, and they created luxurious palaces for themselves with gardens and summer houses, uh, this period has a lot of carved ivory and gold uh, in the archaeology, so which shows that there's an awful lot coming up from Africa with the carved ivory uh, and gold as well. That they were, they were acquiring wealth on an enormous scale, the ruling classes were. So on the surface, this looks like blessing, right? It looks, the headlines look good. They look successful, they look blessed, they look prosperous. The problem was, is that underneath all of this success, underneath these headlines of prosperity and peace, there was this dark, wicked underbelly of the country. Bitter, bitter cruelty happening. The priests and the prophets became completely desensitized to it. In fact, they sought to legitimize the corrupt culture through false prophecy and illegitimate sacrifices. It, it's, I, I, reading through this, I've just found it remarkable just how deluded and how corrupt the priests and the prophets could be in this kind of environment of prosperity and extreme wealth. They were very much connected with the state. And so they were kind of pulled along with this incredibly quick-moving culture of, of prosperity and wealth. But it got to the point where these priests would organize uh, orgies for the ruling classes in the temples as part of the worship of the Lord God. It had gone that far. But it was, it was sicker than that, believe it or not. The, the parties that these priests and prophets created for the ruling classes, they were 
paid for at the expense of the poor. Amos talks about how they would exact taxes and fines on the poorest for the most insignificant things and then use that money to raise the money for the wine. And also when uh, the poor were having to take out loans and that they would have to give some collateral against the loans they were taking out against the rich, they would often give their best garments. So they would give their coats and their best blankets as collateral against these uh, emergency food loans, if you like. And so that the rich didn't need to get their clothes dirty in their orgies, they would take the collateral of the poor and they would spread that over the floor of the temple so that they would keep their own clothes clean. And then they would do this in the holy place. They called this worship. And these are supposed to be God's covenant people. At this period of history, sexual abuse was normalized. They had become the center of a brutal slave trade. Their justice system was utterly corrupt. And the wealth of the ruling classes was growing more corrupt by the day. God is furious. He's absolutely furious. He knows that government lo- governments love to crow about their successes and their headlines whilst ignoring the plight of the poorest in society. But he's got higher expectations of his covenant people. And he takes great offence when the oppression and corruption is carried out in his name. So this is how King jo- Jeroboam II's reign is described in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 26. It says this, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned for forty-one years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. The Lord has seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. That's how his reign is described. Uh, Verse 26, the Lord has seen how bitterly everyone in Israel whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. So, this is Amos's audience. Grotesque wealth, bitter oppression of the poor, sexual abuse, temple prostitution, and dangerous power families. And into this highly charged and powerfully political situation walks a lone prophet. Amos, would you like that job? (laughs) He's not from Israel. He's not part of this scene. He walks in from outside. He was born in a place called Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem in the province of Judah. He's not part of the religious system. See, in that day, the religious system was so linked with the state 
that the kings used to uh, support the prophets and the priests. They had uh, prophetic guilds that were established by the state. So the prophets at that time, uh, they were being fed and watered and clothed and housed and trained through the, the finances of the kings. And so there was a number of these prophetic guilds that were around at the time, and Amos is not one of them. So like Moses before him, he kind of comes out of obscurity. He comes out of the outside to be able to speak and confront directly the system of his day. A bit like John the Baptist after him. He's not a Pharisee, he's not a Sadducee, he's not one of the, 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 the religious order. So he can kind of say what he likes and they don't know what to do about it. There's no one to send him to to get reprimanded. You can't just send him to the archbishop or the high priest or the, whoever's in the structure and say, deal with this one, they're stepping out of line. Because he's a voice from the wilderness. A bit like Jesus, who is this man from Nazareth, what on earth has he got to say? Seems like God uses prophets sometimes out of obscurity just to come in and to be able to cut through all of the religious mess and to speak to the heart of the matter. I wonder who our present day prophets are. You might be able to think of some. Actually, one who, who sprang immediately to mind when I was thinking about this is Russell Brand. And I know that's controversial. And I know that he's got a very different background to Amos, okay? I'm not saying that the two are the same. I'm just saying, actually, he comes out completely out of the religious and political system. And actually, some of the things he's got to say cut through in an incredible way. I've actually really appreciated some of the things that Russell Brand has said politically. Um, over the last couple of years. And sometimes when you see him on, um, on Question Time, it's just like, finally, somebody's talking sense, personally. So we've got people like that that can speak from the outside in and can just cut through all the nonsense. But this is exactly who Amos was. He's a small business entrepreneur. He's a sheep herder and a sycamore fig scratcher. If you want to know what one of those is, it says he's, uh, it, it suggests he's a keeper of sheep. So this is, this is where he is, he's down in Tekoa. So you've got Bethlehem there, Jerusalem there, the kingdom of Israel is up here somewhere. And he's right down here in the desert, and there's the edge of the Dead Sea there. So this land here is sort of deeply ridgy, you've got the fertile plain this side, you've got desert here, it, it, this is sort of, sort of the patch in between. Where, which is just very, very patchy grassland. It's very rocky, it's very uh, mountainous. It's difficult to make a living here. And apparently the kind of sheep that were often reared in this part of the world uh, were small sheep that were famous for their fleeces. Can't see that, but they're Bethlehem. They're standing in Tekoa. Bethlehem would be over there, Jerusalem, Mars over there. And he would have probably reared small sheep that were famous for their quality of their fleeces. So uh, it's a bit of a... Uh, a special market, uh, and also sycamore figs. He was a sycamore fig farmer, which is a bit of a delicacy as well in the area. Um, and apparently to, to get the best out of these, I read, you have to climb up the tree and you have to make little incisions in the figs, otherwise they don't ripen so well, they become bitter. So if you want a nice, juicy, ripe, sweet fig, you have to make little incisions in all of them. So it's quite hard work, both of these things, raising sheep in this area and uh, growing these figs is quite hard work. but. Uh, clever, 
because they both fetched a high price. And that's the kind of guy he was. So he was an entrepreneur. I quite like that. He's, you know, he, we might compare him to someone that grows oyster mushrooms or um, makes manuka honey. You know, something a little bit special that commands a slightly higher price, but you've got to work hard to make it. You could maybe, uh, so he's not just a hired hand, he's a clever businessman. You could think of him maybe as one of the founders of River, Riverford. Okay? So something a bit special. It's a, a organic, uh, but he, he's with it. And he's, he's owning a business. He's also educated. I'm told that Amos is some of the finest Hebrew in the Old Testament. Is that right? So I'm just looking over this way here. Yeah? Yeah. Hugh knows about these things. He's a Hebrew scholar. Well, this is what I hear. The, the Hebrew uh, in Amos is, is impressive. So he's, he's not uh, an uneducated shepherd. The name Amos is interesting as well. Load bearer. It could be... Uh, heavy, it could mean heavy load, which means he could have got this name from the Israelites as though it, it, this could have been a slanderous name. It could have been something to say, oh, here comes this guy again just to load his prophecies onto us. He's a bit of a pain in the neck, in other words. Mm-hmm. Could have got it that way. But I quite like the idea, and this is where I read somewhere else, it could, load bearer could mean one who takes the strain. And I like that idea. I like the idea that <coughs> this could be somebody that was willing to pull in the opposite direction and to feel the burden of God in his generation. You know, when the rest are going along with the flow of society, getting fat from it or getting hurt by it and just trying to survive and find a way forward, find an easiest path. Amos decides he's going to take the strain and pull in the opposite direction of his society for his generation. He allows God just to place on him the weight of the grief in his heart. And he's willing to carry that with God. I quite like that. I think that is a good description of who Amos became. Because he's given up his valuable business in Tekoa. And for what? What does Amos get out of this? He gets nothing but grief and pain out of delivering God's message. And yet he's passionate and courageous with it. I think he's a rare person of incredible character and quality. Let's read about his standoff with the priest of Bethel. Let's open our Bibles at Amos. Amos is in the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. So if you find Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or Joel, go forwards. If you go as far as Hosea, you've got to go backwards a bit. So Amos, he's there in the Old Testament. Has anyone got a church Bible number? 916917, is that right? Yeah. Okay, that's where it is. And now go to chapter 7. Okay, and starting from 
verse 10. This is a, a showdown, if you like, with one of the leading priests of one of the main uh, illegitimate centers of worship in Israel, a place called Bethel. It says this, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plan, uh, sorry, hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he's saying is intolerable. He's saying that Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. But Amos replied, I am not a professional prophet, and I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, and I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me to go and prophesy to my people in Israel. Now then, listen to this message from the Lord. You say don't prophesy against Israel. Stop preaching against my people. But this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in this city, and your sons and daughters will be killed. Your lands will be divided up, and you yourself will die in a foreign land. And the people of Israel will certainly become captives in exile, far from their homeland. Well, don't mess with Amos. Goodness me. Nobody actually challenged Amos after that. You'd be surprised to hear this man was basically one of the most powerful people in Israel. He was the priest of Bethel, the biggest national centre. He ran the sanctuary of the king and the, where the, the big national celebrations were happening. This guy, it, it's, a, it's just the equivalent of like a prime minister coming to you and then saying that to them. But also they have a religious office. So it's like saying to someone who's like a pope and a prime minister at the same time, this is what the Lord says. That takes some guts, doesn't it? It's incredible. He shared exactly what he knew the Lord had told him to say to this man, as hard as that may be, and as uncomfortable as it must have been coming out of his mouth. He did not pull any punches. It's incredible. I'm starting to like him. I like the way he just says what he needs to say without coming under people's pressure. He's like a roaring lion. Just turn back to chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah, Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. This is what he saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. I think that pretty much sums up the way he goes about his message. He's a roaring lion, one who takes the strain. So we've got the structure before we go any further. So the verses we just read, introduction, one and two. Chapter 1, verses 3 to chapter 2, verse 3, is prophecies against the surrounding nations. 
kind of love the way he introduces his prophecy. It's like he gets their ear first. And you see this in other parts of the Bible as well. First thing he does is he speaks against Israel's enemies. And he tells them that judgment is going to come upon these uh, other nations that are also doing some horrific things. And so the Israelites would have listened to him and they'd be cheering at this point going, yeah, God's going to get them. (laughs) So he does that first, he wins them. And then he talks about Judah. And they don't like Judah much either. They're the kind of uh, weak cousin as far as they perceive it and they don't really like them. Uh, So they're going to celebrate the fact that God is going to judge Judah. Yeah, get them. And then he turns on Israel. And the rest of it is really against Israel. He just, he's unrelenting for the rest of it against Israel. And I love the way the prophets do this. You see this um, in other places. I think of Stephen, when he was before the Sanhedrin in the New Testament. If you know that story, he's, he's being grilled by the Sanhedrin. First, he does this amazing trawl through Israel's history. And they're, it's until they are just almost worshipping the, the wonder of their God. And then he turns on them and says, you're the ones that crucified Jesus. And they can't bear it. It's like going from up there to suddenly hitting the floor and the prophet speaks. Well, this is how it is. He's kind of spoken truth and they've agreed and they've agreed and they've agreed and then all of a sudden they have to listen. It's incredible. So the the content of his prophecies against Israel cover these things. This is from chapter 2, verses uh, 5 to uh, 6, verse 14. First... It's exploitation of the poor. It's slave trading. It's bribery and corrupt justice systems. It's sexual abuse of slaves. And it's these drunken orgies that I was talking about. So that's the the, the bulk of this book. I'm going to delve into some of that stuff uh, next week. And then chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. 10 is visions and intercessions. So Amos shares what he sees the Lord showing him. And there's these conversations between him and God where God says, this is what I'm going to do because of what I see. And he stands in the gap between the people of Israel and God and says, God, don't do this. They're too small. They won't survive. And then God relents. So it's a little bit like Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and other times in the word as well where God listens to the prophet. And there's this... uh, it's almost like a conflict over what's going to happen. And God processes the future of this nation with this prophet in the most incredible way. And then chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. Thank goodness we end up with a bit of future hope. So it all comes good in the end. And God shares his passion and his hope for what he wants his people to look like and the kind of relationship that he wants to have with them. So as I say, he wasn't speaking alone. Hosea was a contemporary. And it's really worthwhile reading the book of Amos alongside the book of Hosea. Because they were speaking around the same time with the same people. They were speaking into the same situation. So in a way you've got this balance between grace and truth. Justice and faithfulness. Amos is primarily truth and justice, whereas Hosea is primarily grace and faithfulness. So the main themes, Israel will be judged and overthrown by foreign nations, which sounded completely ridiculous to them. 
because they felt completely invincible and that everything was going well. It's a bit like announcing America will fall. Who's going to believe that? That was the kind of level of uh, message that he was having to bring. It's another main theme is God's heart for the poor of the earth and his hatred of corruption and oppression. Another main theme is authentic worship and about how authentic worship has a relationship to our human affairs and how we deal with one another. It's not just about what we do on Sunday mornings or at the temple. It's about our lives. Another theme is God's unfailing desire for a true covenant people who have a thirst for righteousness. It's all in there. Amos 5, 23 and 24. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. In other words, forget the show. Let's live right in heart and in practice. That's what God cared about. So that's an overview of this amazing book. That's what we're going to be looking at. But I want to pull a few things out. This week, Maybe we could reflect upon this. The heart's ability to deceive is legendary. These Israelites had strayed so far from their true identity and purpose, and they couldn't see it. They were blinded to where they'd ended up. And I think it happens to all of us in different degrees. We have a way of convincing ourselves that everything's okay and overlooking the things that are just really not okay. And our hearts have a tremendous capacity for this. Jeremiah 17 verse 19 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I think it's the combination of the society we live in and our own sinful desires that can carry us wildly off course. Miles away from where God intends us to be. And then the thing that we do is we try to legitimize our position and tell ourselves that this is exactly where we're meant to be. That's how it works. We deceive, our, deceive ourselves and we say, yeah, this, this must be how life is. This must be what it's supposed to look like. Does that make sense? I see this with people all the time. I spend quite a lot of my time with people who have believed all sorts of negative lies about who they are. And the world around them has knocked them so hard that they can't imagine any kind of different reality. 
They found themselves locked in to their experience. And they can't begin to see that things could be different. And the only thing you can do if life has treated you consistently that way, often, is just to create a worldview that makes sense of that. And you live there. And it's hard. And when you speak to people about what heaven's like, and you speak to people about what God's heart is for them, it's like speaking another language sometimes. If you speak about a different identity, a different way of thinking, a different way of feeling and acting, it's impossible. I guess it's like trying to imagine heaven when you've spent your life in a kind of hell. It just feels so distant. It just feels so impossible. And it can take a long time to unpick the tangled version of truth and righteousness that that heart has created to live in. It takes trust. It takes a lot of listening. It takes a lot of unconditional love. And then you can begin (coughs) to untangle where things have got screwed up and got wrong and start looking at those roots that have gone deeply down into lies and start dealing with some of those hurts that have come along the way. But it's difficult. It's hard. And part of that is because our hearts allow us to build a reality around our experiences. And we say that's just how it is. And it can never change. Well, this was the case in Israel. Society had careered down an increasingly immoral road. And the people had tried to justify everything and claim they were walking in God's favour and blessing when really they couldn't have been further from him. So when society is messed up and your heart has deceived you, what can you do to break out of the cycle and live differently? That's the question. What do you need? You need the prophetic word of God. That's what these people needed. They needed the clear prophetic word of God. They needed something as strong as God's word to break through right into the heart of their experience. And to start changing things around in the life of that nation. Here's a bit of the prophetic word of God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's break that down. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what is in your view? How do you live with God's mercy in your view at all times? That God is a God of love, God is a God of mercy, God has redeemed you, he loves you. In view of God's mercy, in view of how he has demonstrated his, his character and his life and his intentions on the cross, then how shall we live? And it starts there. It starts what you have in your mind's eye. 
What is in your mind and in your imagination and in your view? What takes your attention most of the time? Is it the things that you don't have that you'd like to have in your life? Or is it the goodness of God, God's mercy? What is your mind about? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That basically means it's not about me. It's not about me and what I want and what I can get and how far I can climb up the ladder in this life. It's not about me. It's about, about saying, okay, if I, put my, if I lay my life down, if I put my life in this body second, then how will you show me that this world works? And there's something about putting ourselves down that where God will then move in and begin to show you how he thinks and feels and what he says is important. <coughs> You start to become useful to God. Holy. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy means separate, set apart, different, distinct. We need to be willing to be different. We need to be willing to be set apart and pleasing to God. This is another one of our filters. How I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, what, what I spend my money on, is it pleasing to God? First and foremost, does this bring you pleasure, God, or does this turn your stomach? If the Israelites had been applying these filters, they wouldn't have gone where they've gone. Do you live your life to be pleasing to God? This is true and proper worship. This will stop your worship from becoming something else and stop you trying to worship God in other means. Clear as day, do not conform to the patterns of this world. We all live in cultures, everyone on the planet lives in a culture which is going to be contrary to the way God wants us to live. There's going to be elements of our culture that run in line with God's will and there's going to be elements of our culture that runs completely against God's will. But Paul says in the book uh, to the Romans, he says, don't conform, don't just go along with everything as a package. There's a pattern that's going to be placed upon you. You don't have to conform to it. We need to be those who are thinking about what we do and don't say yes to. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's this. This is the only way that we can examine ourselves against who God is and what God says. This word has great power to transform our thinking, to transform our priorities, to transform our lives. The Bible is incredibly powerful to transform society. And every one of us needs to devour it. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years or for three minutes, or you're on your way in, you're on your way home. This book is incredibly powerful. Love it, treasure it, read it. I love it, I, love it. I even love the maps. Awesome. Then, then, when you can follow these, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. This kind of suggests that you're going to be blinkered and blind to what that will is unless you are willing to remember who God is to put yourself second and offer yourself as a living sacrifice, to be willing to be separate and set apart, to desire to be pleasing to God, 
to refuse to conform to the patterns of this world, to allow the Bible to transform and renew your mind, then you're going to see clearly. Do you want to? Do you want to see how far away from God's heart that your heart has been able to lead you and society has been able to lead you? There's got to be a desire to see it because if we don't want to see it, we won't. And I think it's a constant check that we need to make. So that's the first thing. The heart's ability to deceive is legendary. Second thing, the values of the society we live in are really hard to oppose. That's another thing that I draw out of this incredible book. It's tough. Constant exposure to the way things are makes us feel powerless to change things. Has anyone seen the film I, Daniel Blake? Is that one or is that more? Hands? Okay. This is going to be completely useless to you. <laughs> no, homework. If you can, homework from today. Go and watch the film I, Daniel Blake. Okay? It's a very, very powerful film. It's about a guy who has a heart attack, who's, who's a, it's, it's set up north, uh, north, north of England. He has a heart attack, he's a carpenter joiner. His doctor tells him he's not allowed to work, so he tries to get on the benefit system. And it, it, he just has to kind of go around the houses, jumping through all these bureaucratic processes, trying to get on the benefit system. And then he, he has these assessments to see whether he's eligible for work or not, and because he passes a lot of it, uh, they basically deem him not fit for um, uh, income support allowance, I think it is. So he has to go on job seekers, and so he has to then fit, uh, come up with a CV, even though he's never used a computer in his life. He has to do all these online forms. He has to then go and apply for jobs, which he's not allowed to get because his doctor said he can't get them. But then he has to, because he can't prove that he's been out there looking for work that he can't even have, uh, they then uh, cut his benefits. And it sounds almost funny because it is ridiculous but actually this is the truth for a lot of people in our society this is the kind of wrestling that people have to do to get by uh, and the system sometimes can be quite unkind even though it's trying to be a support um, so it, it, what is woven into this film is the beautiful relationships in this struggling community where they just try and help each other out and it shows the role of the food banks and it shows the role of just being a neighbour next door and being willing to help. And when something's broken, you just try and help them fix it. And it shows people going without meals in preference for their children. It shows people uh, just dying in their homes because they have no money. And then wrestling with the, the temptation to do illegal things in order to get cash. Go on, watch it. It's a really great backdrop to what we're looking at, actually. The values of society we live in are hard to oppose. It, the exposure that we have to this day in, day out, make, it sort of desensitizes us to inequality and injustice, especially if you're not on the oppressed side of the fence. We can struggle to see it for what it is. But as we see things, we're called to be prophets and cry out against injustice in whatever form it may be. We should speak up. 
So pray for the prophets of justice in Westminster. That's what I'd say firstly. Pray for those who actually have the important agendas of our country on their hearts in Westminster and have the, the, the office to do something about it. That's a really important thing I think we need to be doing because the rich, rich and poor divide is still growing in our country. I think it's really important that we ask that God's will shall be done in Westminster. So that's the, that's the first thing in this kind of second point, the values of society that uh, we live in are hard to oppose. Pray. Pray for our government. And then the second thing is, the last thing is this, are we prepared to take the strain to carry the Lord's burden for our generation, ourselves, us, just little old us, do we care enough? Remember, Amos means burden bearer, someone who's willing to take the strain. God still uses unlikely prophets to expose oppression and to bring about change. Amos was a pretty ordinary man in many ways, but he allowed God to share his heart with him, and therefore he cared deeply about his generation, and he was motivated to speak out as the Lord directed him. We're not all going to have the same kind of office, or calling, or sending as Amos had, thank God. I wouldn't want to swap places with him. But we can all be willing to be obedient to what God showed us. We're not all going to save the world through our words or through our actions. But actually God will lay things upon our hearts if we're willing to let him. And it could just be one small thing. It could be as small as seeing the person a couple of doors down who is struggling and just going to say, what, what can I do? Befriending someone who needs befriending. It can just be the choice of how we spend our money at the supermarket. It can be lots of things. But what... Are we open to what God wants to lay upon our hearts? Or is it easier just to turn a blind eye and keep walking? Keep going as we are. How soft is your heart to God's priorities and to those who are suffering around us? I think is a constant challenge. Something I constantly wrestle with. How, how much can I respond? Where do I put my boundaries? How high is the fence of my family? Do I let people in? Or do I keep order? It's hard to make those decisions sometimes. But we have to be open to the Holy Spirit to lead us beyond our places of security to do what we can do. Okay. So, finish with a question. What do you see? What do you see in your town? What do you see in your workplace? What do you see in your kid's school that is not okay? You're surrounded by things that are not okay, but what do you see? How can you question it when you see it and, and support positive change? Do you care enough? If not, I think we can ask God to give us the burdens on his heart. Sometimes if we don't naturally care enough to do anything about it, it's okay to admit that to God and to say, God, would you break my heart for this? Because I think he's willing to do that.
and to give you courage to speak out. Let's have the band back up. It's an uncomfortable message, isn't it? It's not supposed to be comfortable. Let's stand up. Shake yourselves around a bit because it's quite warm in here. And you've listened to this prophet rant on long enough. Let's come to the Lord in light of his word. Father, I want to thank you that this society we live in is not as brutal and shameful and oppressive as the one that Amos spoke into. Lord, thank you for the health of your church that is not supporting wickedness and corruption largely, but actually your church right across this nation is responding to the need. Thank you for waking up your church to be able to see poverty in all its forms and then just simply try and do something about it and to stand in solidarity with the poor of this country. Lord, I'm proud to be part of a movement of people that bear your name, that have pioneered food banks and organizations that have really sought to get alongside the, those who are struggling the most in our country not with any kind of arrogance or superiority, but with true solidarity and love. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in us. But Lord, we know there's still so much to do. And we know that there's still parts of us that live in ivory towers. Jesus. And so, Father, we come before you. Lord, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we want your heart to impact ours so that we, do, we don't deceive ourselves. But we see things as they really are and then stand with you, take the strain and say, God, so how would you have us proceed? Lord, this week I pray that you would just speak to each of us. Would you whisper to us, show us our blind spots. Show us the people that you want us to see and not just pass over. And give us the compassion of Jesus and the courage of a prophet to step out and to partner with you. In Jesus' name.